Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Alarmy. Get out your planners and mark your calendars because The Alarmist Live is happening Friday, August 28th at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We'll be deciding who's to blame for prohibition with special guest Matt Gorley. Pour some moonshine and get ready to blame from the comfort of your own home. The link to reserve your spot is in our show notes. We hope to see you there, Alarmy. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we'll be speaking with guest expert Ken Cuthbertson, author of The Halifax Explosion, Canada's Worst Disaster. And boy, does he have a lot to say about this disaster. Honestly, we might have gotten this one way wrong, people. Let's hear what he has to say. Hi, Ken. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Well, we're talking about the Halifax Harbor explosion. Um, can you start off by giving us a brief history of Halifax Harbor and uh, how did Canada's participation in World War I change the harbor and the city? Well, uh, if you've ever been to the east coast of uh, Canada or east coast of the United States, you know that um, Nova Scotia is a little finger that sticks out into the, uh, the ocean and Halifax is the, the main port there. And it, it's a British naval base from oh, mid 18th century, about 1749, uh, a fellow named Cornwallis uh, landed there in a naval base. The British influence was pretty strong in, in Halifax for, for many, many years. In fact, the New York Times called Halifax the most British city in North America, and that's uh, no exaggeration. It's kind of important uh, for what we're going to talk about to know a little bit about um, how the harbor was configured at Halifax. Um, if, you, if, you think of, um, if you think of the harbor, you can think of uh, uh, sort of a V where the ships would enter the, the open end of the V and it narrows down. And then there's a narrow passageway called the Narrows, uh, which is at the apex, right at the, uh, the, uh, the point of the V. And then there's uh, an area called the Bedford Basin, and that's where um, the ships would anchor. So um, by, by the 1860s, uh, Halifax was really a busy port. A lot of the uh, a lot of the trade was up and down the coast with Boston and New England, New York. So uh, that was where a lot of the shipping and the and the trade went back and forth. The naval presence there was still very strong with the British, 
But of course, the British, uh, like uh, like so many countries and so many empires, ran out of money. So in the 1870s, they withdrew all their troops. And in 1905, they, the, the Navy disappeared. They all went home. They sailed off and left poor Halifax there, undefended, basically. Um, there was a Canadian Navy, but not much to speak of. It was a couple of boats, uh, and there wasn't really a formal Navy until uh, a few years later. But uh, the reason I'm mentioning all this is because Halifax was kind of down on its, uh, down on its luck, and then the war came along. And that really changed everything because suddenly Halifax became a very important port again. Uh, the British Navy returned, um, and the Brits were in charge of the port again. So that was uh, was kind of the backdrop for what we're going to talk about. Um, so uh, December 5th, it's the day before the explosion, 1917. And the two ships involved in the accident are the SS Emo and the SS Montblanc. Yep, you've got it down pat. And both have suffered some scheduling snafus. What what are they and how do they inform the events of the next day? Snafus, that's one way to put it, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you a little bit about the, the two ships, just very briefly, to give you some sense of uh, what we're talking about with these. The Mont Blanc is about 325 feet long, so it's like the size, the length of a football field, basically. It's got a crew of about 40, and they're mostly French nationals. And the ship was built in England. It, it was a cargo ship, and it was what they, the sailors will tell you was hard used. It was used to haul scrap metal and all kinds of junk. And it was owned by the British or the, uh, the French government uh, in 1917. They took it over, and they were using it to haul uh, explosives and other materials for the war. But Medec, who was the captain, uh, Aimé Le Medec, was a, uh, a career shipping man, a captain. He was 39 years old, and he'd never been on the ship before. But in this particular voyage, um, he, he goes to New York, and he th- expects he's going to pick up uh, a load of um, parts, uh, machine parts. But when he gets there, uh, they kind of change the plans, and they tell him, oh, no, you're going to be hauling explosives. So he has a, a bit of a – he's taken aback, let's put it that way. Um, especially he's taken aback when they start loading the explosives on the boat. Because in, in Europe, what's happened is the war has been dragging on uh, for, for three years. The war started in 1914. By 1917, the bloodletting is continuing, and France and uh, the Allies are becoming desperate. Uh, the U.S. entered the war, um, what, in April of 1917. So they kind of um, uh, shifted the balance of power. So the, the war was starting to go in favor of the Allies, but um, it, was, it was still going badly for the French. And they were in dire need of, um, of explosives and armaments and all the rest of it. So that's why they loaded up the Mont Blanc with, with all these explosives. If you think of it, 3,000 tons, I can't even begin to, to visualize how much that is, but 3,000 tons of high explosives packed into the ship. And then when they got uh, all the, the, sh- the ship's hold uh, filled, they decided, well, there's still some room on the deck, so let's pile some um, barrels of high-octane fuel. And so they piled uh, a couple hundred barrels of this stuff and lashed it to the deck with ropes. But the big problem was that the, uh, the Mont Blanc was a very slow ship. As I said, it had been hard used. Ships went across the ocean uh, at that time and during World War II in convoys. And they did this for um, uh, protective purposes. The, uh, the Navy ships would protect them to try and uh, ward off the submarines. But the problem with the Mont Blanc was it was, um, could only go eight knots, and eight knots is about 10 miles an hour. So that's pretty slow. The minimum was 12 that they had to go. If you stop and think about uh, how fast ships of the, that day went, a ship, big ship like the Titanic would do probably 25 to 30 knots, so more than almost three times the speed of it. So you can see the Mont Blanc was ill-suited to be a, a munition ship. It was basically a sitting duck, and Captain Medeck and his crew were terrified. Hmm. So they start out for, um, for um, Halifax because uh, they couldn't catch on with a convoy in New York. The thinking was, and I don't know why British people thought this way, they, uh, the naval people and the Canadian Navy, if you, if you can't catch on with a convoy out of New York, go to Halifax. Maybe you can catch on with one there. And if you can't, well, you have to sail on your own. So they limped their way up to Halifax, uh, going as, you know, slowly eight knots. And it's a, a stormy seas, uh, a snowstorm, all the rest of it. They managed to get to Halifax on the evening of December 5th. And unfortunately for them, there is a gate across the harbor. It's a, a series, of, it's a chain with a whole bunch of uh, mines on it. And the reason they had that was to keep the um, submarines out of the harbor. Mont Blanc gets to Halifax and it's too late to get into the harbor for the night. So the pilot comes on board and the pilot is a man named uh, Francis Mackey. And he's a veteran pilot, the most experienced pilot in um, 
in Halifax. And pilots are required on all boats coming into harbors. Um, if you know anything about uh, harbor activities, you know that uh, pilots are sort of integral because they're the, uh, the people who guide ships in and out and the harbor master tells uh, basically where to park your ship. In this case, um, Mackie gets on the boat and he stays overnight. The um, other ship, the IMO, has arrived in Halifax that same day, earlier, actually the day before, uh, just, and just to pick up some coal. The IMO is kind of interesting. It's 400, uh, 430 feet long, and it's got a crew of about 40, uh, mostly Norwegians. So it's, it's about a third longer and bigger than the Mont Blanc. And one interesting thing that uh, your listeners might um, find interesting, at least I did, is the, sh the ship was built at Harland and Wolf in Belfast. And it's the same shipyards that built the Titanic. And uh, Captain Edward Smith, who was the captain of Titanic, uh, was actually the captain of um, the IMO, which was called the Runic when it was first uh, first launched. But he was he was the captain of the of that ship for a year, well not even a year, uh, a part of a year, and uh, then he moved on to other things and uh, went down with the Titanic. So he didn't didn't do all that well, did he? Oh wow! <laughs> the captain of the IMO was. Um, uh, on this voyage was a, a man named Hakon Frohm, F-R-O-M. Uh, he was 47. He, he was, um, again, a veteran uh, sea captain, and he came from Sandefjord, Norway, and he was eager to get home for Christmas. His ship was, um, was hauling grain uh, as a relief ship. It was hauling grain from the States over to, uh, to Belgium because Belgium was still in the war, and uh, uh, the German army was eating like locusts. They were eating everything in, in Belgium, and the people were starving, so um, they were hauling grain. The ship was empty going to New York, um, but they got to Halifax, needed coal, so they stopped, and they were supposed to leave that night. Um, De December 5th, they were supposed to be out of the harbor, and as far as the, the port authority knew, that was when they had left, but they hadn't because the, the coal shipment uh, to power their engine was uh, slow arriving, so they were uh, stuck overnight, and in the next the next morning, they were ready to leave, and Hakon Frome, uh, who had a temper and was impulsive, was raring to go. Wow. So when these two ships spot each other, and first of all, thank you so much for uh, clarifying how to say, I've been saying emu this whole time. So it's definitely the imu. Imu, emu, depends if you're Norwegian, I guess. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> Not both ways. Okay. So when the two ships eat, uh, spot each other in the narrows, what goes wrong? Hey, what went right? Yeah. Well, what, ha what happened was on the morning of December 6th, remember I mentioned that the, uh, the Mont Blanc uh, was anchored just outside the harbor gates. Unfortunately for them, they were the second ship in line. There was another ship uh, just in front of them, an American tramp steamer. And on board that ship was uh, a younger pilot, um, not as experienced as Mackie, the guy who was on uh, the Mont Blanc. So the gates opened. Um, it's, uh, I, I should mention that it's a sunny day. It's clear. It's calm. Uh, there's a slight mist on the water, uh, but otherwise it's a beautiful day and it's uh, unseasonably warm because, like I said, it's a degree or so below, or I guess you're just above freezing. Uh, so there's maybe a little skim of ice on, on the, uh, the water here and there, but uh, generally it's, it's a wonderful day. And the Mont Blanc is the second ship through the, um, through the gate. The first ship, um, which, which proceeds ahead of them about a mile or so ahead, um, comes across uh, a scow hauling some ashes from one side of the harbor to the other. And so they steer around them. There's a bit of confusion there. And this tramp steamer steers over out of its channel uh, on the wrong side, uh, wrong side of the channel towards heading in towards the anchorage. Uh, and so there's a bit of confusion. It, it just continues on its path. Meanwhile, the IMO, which is at the other end, uh, coming out of Bedford Basin where it's been anchored, um, starts into the channel and it sees this tramp steamer. And the tramp steamer is on the wrong side of the channel. A rule of thumb, if you're, um, if you're a sailor, uh, and I'm, I'm not a sailor, but uh, it's been explained to me many times that this is how it happens. It's like driving. When you, um, if, you're, if you're driving towards somebody and on a narrow road and they're coming towards you, you veer to the right, they veer off to their right, and you pass, and everybody smiles. And you wave and say, how are you? And in this case, what happened with this tramp steamer and um, with the IMO is the tramp steamer is out of position. And so they kind of weave, bob and weave a little bit back and forth, wave to one another, and they pass on the wrong side. So rather than passing off to the right, they pass to the left. Of course, this leaves, um, this leaves the IMO out of its channel where it should have been. 
And as they're passing, the, the, uh, the young pilot on the ship yells, there's another ship coming. And the pilot, uh, a man named Hayes, who's on the IMO, uh, is a little confused. He sees the scowl, which had been hauling ashes, and he thinks that's the other ship. But the Mont Blanc is coming to, straight towards them. And they're off in the distance, and you, you can't really see because there's a little, a little bit of uh, mist. And the IMO is coming out of the um, out of the um, the harbor towards the ocean. The Mont Blanc is coming in from the ocean, uh, from the gates of the harbor, and the sun is behind them, so they're silhouetted. You can't really see them. Now, what happens next is really confusing, and there was a great argument about it, and um, there was a court case about it. There was a an, uh, commission of inquiry. Um, there was a lot of confusion, let's put it that way, uh-huh. over who is at fault. Uh, because as the ships came towards one another, if you've ever walked along a sidewalk and somebody walks towards you and they're doodling around or you know, uh, sending a message or something, they're listening to music, not paying attention, they suddenly look up and they see you and you do a little step one way, they step one way, they step the other way, you kind of smile and you say thanks for the dance and you, know, you, you, you pass uh, sometimes on the right side, sometimes on the left side. That's basically what happened with these two ships. Uh, Mackie, the pilot who's on the Mont Blanc, looks up and sees this ship coming straight towards him. And he says, what the heck's going on? And Captain Hayes and Hakon Fromm on the IMO look up and they see the Mont Blanc coming towards them. They don't know what this ship is, but they're confused too. Why is he in our path? But in fact, the IMO is out of its path. The Mont Blanc is out of its path because, uh, or it's in its path, but it's going to be out of its path as soon as it tries to, to, uh, to deviate, to get away. The long and the short of it is that the two ships come together. They crash. Um, not very hard. It's just a, a gentle bump. In fact, the people on the IMO, some of the crew said, what happened? They didn't know what had happened. The people on the Mont Blanc were terrified because after all, they're riding 3,000 tons of explosives. They got all these barrels of uh, high-octane fuel on their deck. And they're just terrified. They didn't want to be on the ship to begin with. Two ships um, collide. IMO drives its bow into the, the Mont Blanc uh, a meter or so, which is a little over a yard. Suddenly there's silence. You know, you can hear is the seagulls and, and uh, the crews on both ships are kind of confused as to what's going to happen next. And the IMO, uh, the people are very confused. How did this ever happen? The Mont Blanc are starting to panic already. The IMO backs out. And as soon as it backs out, metal on metal, sparks on sparks uh, suddenly set the, um, the high octane fuel which has leaked out of barrels onto the deck it sets that on fire so you've got a nice blue flame going looks like your backyard barbecue Oof. so they back out the french people see the ship suddenly go poof and then the flames start coming up in all directions uh the captain i, I mentioned remember i mentioned that this is his first time on the ship he doesn't know where any of the safety equipment is and he w- basically wants to get off i yeah, and the crew is starting to scramble for the boats, but they did have enough uh, uh, discipline to wait. And finally, uh, Mackie, who is the pilot, says, uh, this ship's going to blow up. We better get off. So they hop into their little boats and they start rowing like crazy to the far side of the harbor to get away. The IMO, um, which has been damaged in, the, um, in the, uh, the collision, is kind of adrift. And nobody really knows what was going on on the bridge there because um, obviously there was some confusion about what to do next, and they seem to have set, had some problem with their steering. So they're adrift in the harbor. The Mont Blanc is adrift as well once the crew leaves, and the fire uh, continues to grow on the deck. What was the protocol at the time for the ships carrying the explosive materials? I mean, should, should they have had put up a, a sign or a flag? And who was in charge of patrolling these protocols? Yeah, there's an argument about that. They're spo- um, uh, when ships are handling explosives, they're supposed to f- um, put a little, it's called a swallowtail uh, f- fly up at the back of the ship. It's a little flag that's V-shaped and it flutters in the wind and people realize that there is explosives on board. But technically, they only have to have that if they're handling the explosives. In this case, uh, because they're all, the explosives are already on board, the captain didn't want to fly that flag because that would indicate to uh, German submarines, gee, here's a Here's a ship loaded with explosives. It's it's a prime target. So he, he didn't bother to have a flag. He, he wasn't obliged to uh, legally. Um, so he didn't he didn't carry the flag or didn't have the flag flying. Um, and as, as far as regulations, Halifax um, was, as I said, um, under control of of the, uh, the Royal Navy, really, uh, for all intents and purposes. Um, and in every other port where they uh, were handling explosives, there were regulations saying that Ships laden with explosives could not come into the harbor to anchor. 
there were no regulations like that in Halifax. They weren't weren't enforcing them. So the the impact was uh, that ships were coming and going, not very often, but ships were coming and going with uh, these explosives on board. The fellow who was supposed to be in charge of this was a guy named uh, Commander Wyatt. I, I don't know if I mentioned him earlier, but he was a, a British uh, naval officer, totally bored with uh, the Royal Navy. And the Canadian Navy had started, and they were looking for officers, so they hired him uh, along with a bunch of other people and paid him more than he was making with the uh, the British Navy. He had been uh, the captain of a banana boat out of New York for a while, and um, uh, he divorced his first wife, who was... Uh, the daughter of a wealthy British uh, businessman who ran a corset factory. Apparently, corset business was uh, was going great guns in those days. But anyway, they, they were divorced, and um, uh, this Wyatt fellow had, had um, remarried, and he'd married the daughter of a very wealthy Halifax family. So he was off at a party on the night of um, December 5th, um, thinking everything was tickety-boo in the harbor, uh, and he thought the IMO had left, and uh, this Mont Blanc ship uh, was coming, and everything was under control. So he was not only in control, but he wasn't uh, wasn't on duty at the time. Uh, he, his underlings were. So um, in terms of the, the protocols and the regulations, they were sort of loosely in place, but they weren't enforced. And the people who had their fingers on the switch were kind of asleep doing other things. Wow. Scandal. Scandal. So, <laughs> so wait. So so what happens after the ships collide? Uh, what happens between the time the ships collide and the, the explosion, which occurs at 9.04? Ships collide in about, uh, over quarter to, uh, quarter to nine. And that's uh, sort of the time when people were still going, kids were going to school, people were still going off to work, at least office workers were. Um, so the men would go off, the, the, the women would be home with the kids. Sorry, there was a sexist era in those days, the women were home with the kids, uh, you know, having breakfast, that kind of thing. The Mont Blanc down in the harbor is a blaze. It's a spectacular blaze because all these barrels of uh, high-octane fuel on the deck of the ship are exploding and they're bursting into the air. And it, it looks like uh, the 4th of July because there's a fireworks display. And everybody is um, on, who's on the way to work uh, stops to look uh, out at, at what's going on. People are calling and saying, hey, come look at this. It's a spectacular blaze. And the ship is starting to drift closer, ever closer to Halifax. And there are thousands of people on the shore watching but then, as you said, at uh, 9.04, suddenly, um, the thing kind of, there's a, a, a just a brief moment or two of, of silence, and then suddenly, boom, the uh, Mont Blanc blows up. It just, uh, it's totally obliterated. There's a spectacular uh, fireball that uh, just incinerates everything for half a mile around in all directions. Um, and beneath the ship, the water boils right down to the uh, to the, uh, the, the the shore or to not to the shore to the, the bottom. And meanwhile, a concussive uh, blast um, comes out from the uh, the explosion, and it races up and down the channel. And um, initially, if you were close to the blast, you would have been killed in the in the fireball. Um, if you were far, a little farther away, what happened was it was like a thunderclap. And um, if you saw the uh, the footage from Lebanon where uh, the explosion happens and then uh, the cameras are watching and then suddenly everything goes berserk and, and, and goes off in all directions. That's what happened in Halifax is that concussive blast hit people, it, it burst eardrums, it knocked the buildings over on top of them, it, it toppled things, it broke uh, windows for miles around. And um, that, that was basically what happened. Um, in, the, in the 20 minutes that uh, the ship was a fire. Uh, of course, the first responders all came down to the uh, the shore as well with their hoses because they wanted to put out any fire that was going to happen on shore. And um, so the first responders, as in uh, uh, in 9-11 and, and various other disasters, they took the brunt of uh, the disaster. That's, I, I can't help but see the similarities between you know, even just these two events, even though they're happening, you know, 100 years apart. You know, the, the Halifax explosion and, and the explosion that, that just happened recently in Beirut. Are, are these kinds of disasters, uh, are they avoidable? Why do they continue happening? Because people are stupid. I'm being facetious in some ways, but in other ways I'm not. Uh, uh, these kind of disasters continue to happen because people are... Uh, Officials in, who are in positions to prevent them are arrogant or stupid, and also because uh, there's a lot of incompetence in the world. And if you look at what happened in, in Lebanon and Halifax, I was thinking about it. And in both situations, there were people who were aware of the hazards, 
uh, in Beirut, uh, apparently there was a letter sent to the president uh, warning him of the dangers and nothing was done. In Halifax, the uh, harbor master that I was mentioning, um, the, the military guy, uh, Wyatt, had sent letters to his commanding officers saying, unless something's done here with these ex- ships filled with explosives coming into the harbor, there's going to be a disaster. Of course, his commanding officer didn't pay any attention. He just filed the letters under G for garbage uh, and later denied that he'd ever received such letters. So in both situations, Halifax, Lebanon, there were people who were aware of hazards. Nothing was done. There was lax administration in Halifax with the Navy. There was, there was apparently lax and corrupt administration in, in Lebanon. Uh, and in both explosions, you know, it's uh, the ordinary people who suffered. In my, I, in my book about the Halifax explosion, I went out of my way to um, describe the suffering of um, the women and children because um, th- there were roughly 2,000 people killed uh, in the explosion, uh, another eight or 9,000 injured. And a lot of those uh, people were uh, women and children. Uh, the women in particular um, and children, a lot of them uh, were blinded because they were uh, the ones who were looking out the windows uh, at what was going on in the harbor when the glass shattered it, when uh, tiny fragments went into their eyes and people were blinded. Uh, a lot of people were, um, uh, they were buried under collapsed buildings uh, one woman in particular, uh, who I wrote about, uh, lost nine members of her family and her husband. So, and she was pinned under a building for, for three days. And she was pregnant at the time. And miraculously, uh, a couple of months later, she gave birth to uh, another child. And she lived to a ripe old age. But uh, it was a pretty horrific story. Most times when you hear about disasters, you hear the numbers. It's 2,000, it's 10,000, whatever it is. Uh, it's kind of an abstract thing. But as soon as you start realizing that these are real people and you, you hear their stories, uh, some of it really uh, gets you, punches you in the heart. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. So at the end of the day, if you had to pick one person or one thing that was to blame for the Halifax explosion, who or what would that be? Oh, Rebecca, there's lots of blame to go around. <laughs> I love it. This is, we're in the business of blame. Who wants blame? Well, after the um, uh, after the uh, the blast, let me let me tell you that there was uh, the Canadian government. There was an election coming on December seventeenth, so that was what eleven days after the blast. And the prime minister at that time was uh, from Nova Scotia, and this looked very bad for him. And he wanted to win uh, the election because the election was uh, the the key issue was um, uh, conscription. As I said, the war was going on in Europe. Canada was running out of troops. The, the Allies were running out of troops, so they wanted bodies. And so they had to win this uh, election or else Canada was going to be out of the war. If he got turfed out, the opposition wanted to end the war. Um, so what happened is uh, they called this commission. And as I mentioned, those three guys, uh, Madec, Wyatt, and Mackey, were all charged. Um, and they were eventually uh, acquitted. So they got they got off. They went away. Um there were, there were some civil actions. The lawyers always liked these kind of things, so they were running around passing out their business cards. Uh, and there were all kinds of legal actions. Uh, these were all, those were all eventually thrown out because the court said it was contributory negligence on both sides. Nobody's to blame. So at the end of the day, legally, no one was held accountable. The insurance companies refused to pay claims because these were acts of war for damaged buildings uh, and all the other damage that happened. Uh, so they paid off basically uh, you know, pennies on the, on the, uh, the dollar uh, on the policies. In terms of who is to blame, uh, if you're a lawyer, uh, you talk about contributory negligence. Um, so there was, as I said, lots of blame, no shortage of blame to go around. Uh, civilians um, who were in charge, uh, the politicians, um, the senior naval personnel who didn't do their jobs, both British um, and Canadian, the pilots uh, who were involved, um, bore some of the, the blame because um, they, they had a closed shop operation and um, they they tended to do their own thing, so they didn't communicate with the chief examining officer, this fellow named Wyatt. They were having a feud with him. The civilian harbor master, who Wyatt had taken his job and was uh, demeaning him, uh, he didn't get along with, with Wyatt as well. Um, if you go to the the, the captains of the two ships, Lemedek, um was was almost blameless, but not totally. But Captain Frome was uh, one of the key um, characters in this, one of the key villains, because he was very impulsive. He was angry, he was in a hurry, and as his ship was leaving the harbor, he ordered full speed ahead. And if he hadn't ordered full speed ahead, uh, there would have been more time to avoid a collision. So, as I said, there was no shortage of blame, uh, a lot of people responsible, and it's a prime example of Murphy's Law. If it can go wrong, it will, and um, 
when humans are involved, humans make mistakes. Okay, Ken, but you have to pick one. If I have to pick one, <laughs> well, the, the Privy Council, the Supreme Court of uh, England, which is where Canada sent all its uh, dirty, uh, dirty laundry uh, legally, uh, at the time couldn't pick uh, couldn't pick anybody. But if, but if I was forced to pick, I would um, say that the captain of the IMO, uh, Captain Trom, was uh, primarily responsible. But he certainly had lots of uh, lots of supporting players who. Uh, who were right there behind them and deserve their fair share of blame as well. Wow. I, I'm so glad we spoke to you today, Ken, because you were so enlightening. There were so many aspects of this tragedy that I, I, I still had missed. Um, so thank you so much for uh, telling us more about it. Well, it's my pleasure, Rebecca. It's a, it's a long, involved, complicated story, but it's an interesting one. And, you know, they say history doesn't repeat itself, but uh, Lebanon experience uh, just last week uh, certainly shows that, in fact, these things do happen. And there are countless other examples as well of uh, human stupidity. And as I said, it's it always seems to be the uh, the ordinary people, particularly the women kids who, who tend to suffer in these things. That's right. So everyone should really go check out your book, The Halifax Explosion, Canada's Worst Disaster. Thank you so much, Ken. My pleasure, Rebecca. Thank you. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress and anxiety we carry around as we go about our everyday life. At The Alarmist, we know it's always better to say it out loud and talk it through. Whenever I stress about the sinking of the Titanic, I don't sit with those thoughts in a dark room. I turn on the lights and dive right into it. Therapy is a great place to get things off your chest and work through what's really going on. Maybe you can't stop spiraling or catastrophizing. I started therapy over 10 years ago and never looked back. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Heck, we sometimes change our minds and rethink the verdict at The Alarmist. And that's also okay when it comes to therapists. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Alarmist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Alarmist. With us today, we have producer Amanda Lund. Hi, Rebecca. It's just the two of us. I know, just the girls today. <laughs> but I, but Chris is missing out because, well, he wasn't there for either of the conversations. We're going to have to fill Clayton in. He's going to have to know. I, I'm, I, yeah, he's going to be shocked when I'm he listens. I'm shaken up. I was literally listening to you talk and you two talk and my mouth was open the whole time. I was like feverishly <laughs> scribbling notes. I, I think we... we we were on the right track, but we didn't know. We just, you know, you don't know it. You don't know. No, the details, the backstory. I mean, I, just off the bat, there were so many things I wanted to put up on the board. First of all, the Titanic. It comes around again. Christmas. 
Christmas. Christmas. I wrote down Christmas too. Okay, so let's just kind of go through, because Ken brought up so many good points. I think let's just go through our lists and we're going to have to do a little bit of a retrial here. Yeah. I uh, Look, we got to get our, uh, roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty a little bit. Okay, so first of all, we were way off by sending, um, the who captain, did we send to Captain Mackey. I'm sorry, the not pilot. the pilot. Yeah, the pilot, the pilot okay. Mackey. So according to Ken, the pilot, you know, was not almost, responsible. He said almost blameless. Yeah. Uh, when 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 I, I told him that that's who we sent to jail. And there's for him, it really was Captain Frome, who was the uh, the captain of the emu and or the imu, which I just learned is how you correctly say (laughs) so enjoy canada i'm sure (laughs) you're having a good laugh with our uh (laughs) who's to blame episode and now just to remind the audience we did we sent the pilot francis mackey to jail and we gave a slap to port authority so let's just go through and kind of go through one by one with ken's points and kind of uh see where we went wrong something that he said that really kind of got me was the captain of the mont blanc um was terrified of all the explosives on board and that i thought was really you know kind of eye-opening that he he wasn't in charge of that yeah and the fact that he didn't even know that that's the boat. He, that was his first time on the boat, and he didn't know that that's what he was going to be expecting. Blows my he, mind. That is incredible. And then, as he was saying, um, the captain of the emo of emo, the IMO of IMO. the IMO was in a rush to get home for Christmas. <laughs> Put Christmas up on the board. Incredible. Okay, and so and so this is. Let me just take some notes here. So the captain of the IMO was Captain Fromm, right? Correct. Okay, so just I'm just gonna because we have a lot to kind of get right this time. I'm gonna add to our board Christmas and Captain Fromm, and just to specify, he's not the pilot, uh, which uh, Ken told us was kind of a junior pilot. And that's um, William Hayes, who we had on the board, and we didn't even have Captain Fromm on the board. Right. So that was one of our errors right there. Yeah. Now, now we have to also talk about um, Commander Wyatt. We have to. I mean, the fact that he was at a party the night before and had no idea that there was an, a, a ship with explosive materials just hanging out outside of, of the harbor is uh, unbelievable. Now, startling. I almost screamed. I when, um, when Ken said that Commander Wyatt was married to a woman whose family was rich because they were in the corset industry. That's right. And so he was at, and I think he said they were getting divorced. Well, but- he divorced her and then mar- remarried uh, a, a wealthy uh, woman from Halifax. So, okay. Okay. So the party he was at was not a corset party. No. Party. Okay. <laughs> okay. Because you know my mind was going like mm, corsets, the fashion industry. <laughs> That's right. I mean, you could put some blame on the fashion industry. We don't know the ins and outs of his relationship with his first wife and how corsets played into it. But right. It, it didn't true. end well. It didn't end well for them. So now. Also startling um, to me is that so Commander Wyatt apparently sent a letter. Um, so Commander Wyatt is the harbor master. And now this is kind of weird. We were circling this area when we were trying to blame Port Authority, but we didn't have a name for who's in charge there. Now we do. So the harbor master sent a letter to his commanding officer. We don't have a name for that person. I can look that up. But they apparently trashed the letter and did nothing. I mean... This circles then into, uh, yes, I, I agree with you. That's incomprehensible. And then the circles uh, around, or I don't know what the circle is, but <laughs> it leads us to what Ken said, you know, is human incompetence. And that's been a, a, a theme on our podcast. It, it is one of my greatest fears 
the fact that we have our lives are at the hands of of people who are just doing their job and as as we all know you know you can't be a hundred percent at on your job you know you should be if you're the harbor master you really gotta be yeah a hundred percent at all times but it's just a, a reality that people are not and human incompetence is 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 really a huge factor. I mean, I think that has to go up on the board. Definitely. I'm going to put that up on the board. And also, I want to just... Ken said human stupidity. So oh. maybe we put <laughs> stupidity and um, incompetence because they, you know, they're kind of one and the same. <laughs> now, I'm trying to find a... Um, a name for the commanding officer that didn't do anything, but I'm having trouble. Um, but any anything else we think we we missed that we the prime minister? I guess he he didn't really he he was more um, responsible for not convicting right anyone. It sounds like, but not for the the explosion. Right, he's more to blame for the aftermath. Oh, one other thing I wanted to put up on the board: backlighting. Oh, because Ken mentioned it was sunset. And so that's so scary. You know, when you have to drive and the sun is setting in front of you, you can't see anything. It's really dangerous. That's so true. You you can't you don't have your little uh, flapper. What is it called? Visor on. in your Oh, car? yeah. You can't have a <laughs> visor on a huge boat. You no. know, <laughs> maybe we should. <laughs> the design of the of the Mont Blanc, they should have put visors on that ship. <laughs> I don't even know how that would work. But I mean, um, we should go on Shark Tank with that. <laughs> so, so far, we've added how many things up up on the board? Okay, so just to cl- I'm just going to read off what we originally had, and then I'll add what we what we have added. Okay. So we had the American Navy tugboats, which I do actually think, um, according to Ken, are a little bit culpable. Yes, um, definitely the pilot for that. T- not so much the American Navy as much as the pilot that got on the ship, and yeah, yeah he was also a, a ju- more junior pilot the way Ken described him um, and um, he, he made the decision to go on the wrong side and so that was the the tugboat pilot or that yes, was the tug okay okay then we have Francis Mackey the pilot of the Mont Blanc um, who uh, I think was charged he was charged but never he was a yeah he, he was put he was on acquitted trial. yeah he was acquitted yeah and then um, William Hayes who we learned is innocent. Um, lack of protocol, which I still think is a is a good one because, like Ken was saying, they didn't have to have flags. We thought that they were supposed to, but at most he called it a little swallowtail on the back of the ship. Yes, and it, it was only if they were unloading. Not right. They, they didn't have to have it while they were sailing. Boat rage. Um, and now I think it's less about boat rage and more about Christmas. (laughs) We knew we were circling around something like we knew it wasn't, you know, the, the toot toots, the, the way he expressed those toot toots, that was not normal. (laughs) Okay. And so then we have the crew of the Mont Blanc, which now I think don't deserve to be on the board. Um, port workers, which World ended War- up being a, a port authority. Yes. Um, World War One. Still, that's a good one. The Narrows and British colonization. Mm-hmm. Those are good. and But ultimately, I don't think those were to blame. I, they're definitely a part of it. And now, now we have... This, yeah. this is what we've added. So okay. um, Christmas. Captain Fromm, who was so desperate to get home for Christmas. And he is the captain of the... I'm going to say it wrong... Imo. Thank you. Commander Wyatt, who was the harbor master, who was at a party with his rich wife's family. Commander Wyatt's um, officer, who was the man on the ground. Um, He was the commanding officer at the port. So his boss, essentially. Um, No, Commander Wyatt would be this guy's boss. Oh, okay. And and so this guy, I, I, I think... I think. Um, 
And then human stupidity slash incompetence and backlighting. So if we're going to, you know, re-assess re, uh, uh, our outcome, yeah. I think off the bat, we take out American Navy boats, we take out Mackie, we, um, we, we, we might keep William Hayes up for a little longer and, and keep the lack of protocol. We take out Bo- Boat Rage and the crew. Um, we keep Port Authority, take out World War I, the Narrows, colonization. And really what we're left with are these new ones, which is Christmas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Christmas is very culpable to me at the moment. because, But, but you can fold that into the captain. So, yes. You know, I, I think the way he described the captain was that he was an impulsive guy or, or he was uh, he wanted to I- impatient. Is ha- yeah, so, he was impulsive, impatient, Christmas obsessed. <laughs> I don't know if we know that. But <laughs> <laughs> loved eggnog. <laughs> loved eggnog. Yeah. So I, I, I think we can take Christmas off because okay. if it had been, you know, Valentine's Day, maybe he would have wanted to get there in time for his sweetheart. That's true. <laughs> um, but we know that the pull that Christmas has on people can be intense. So but, is, but I, I agree that we can wrap Christmas up into uh, Captain Fromm. Yes. And the, the, the command... You know, the commanding officer who threw away the the uh, letter, yeah, bo- uh, uh, can kind of fold into port authority, honestly. we I feel like we kind of got that right where I, I'm just glad we got names. But port authority still stands as the the major thing because it's not just one person it's the whole you know system that has to work together to make sure that that it's safe so that's true so so i think we gave port authority the big slap that includes commander wyatt and the commanding officer yeah and and backlighting is totally true i mean it it might have actually been the cause of the accident yeah it might have been but human stupidity um, does encompass that because w- the, the the guy should not have been on the wrong lane. Right. I mean, and also these explosives shouldn't have been on the ship and this like right. this amount of explosives without a little flag. I mean, it's just. Yeah. So backlighting maybe uh, caused the accident, but. Uh, it could have been a smaller accident if the, if if the explosives weren't on the on the ship. Yeah, I mean, so now we're narrowing in on. I mean, obviously, are we kind of like going to send Captain Fromm I to think, jail? You know, honestly, for me, it's between Captain Fromm and human stupidity, and I think we keep uh, Port Authority getting the big slap. What do you think? Yeah, because Captain Fromm was. Um, irresponsible in his actions but there's something a little bit bigger picture just as we are comparing it to what happened in Beirut it's like there's something that about like the corruption in the way the port was being run you know by the was it by the Royal Navy and whatever this dynamic between Commander Wyatt and the commanding officer I mean there seems to be something bigger there because I, I don't know. It's like, I don't know. I think they're both, it's it's hard to choose between those two because yeah, Captain Fromm made a bad decision when he, you know, he was really wanting to get home for Christmas, but. But he didn't have the whole picture. He didn't yeah. know what was in the other ship's cargo. Exactly. So I, I for me, I think it's, it is, you know, guys, people, we have to be smarter. <laughs> So are you thinking maybe it's human stupidity? I think I do. <laughs> and I think unless you want to, you know, tell Port Authority, give, send Port Authority to jail and give human stupidity the slap. I mean, that's another option we have. 
I just and think we can't we can't let Captain Fromm off the hook fully. Mm. Again. Yes. How about this? Okay, I, I think I'm changing my mind here. I think we need to send Port Authority to jail. Okay. And I think we give Captain Fromm the big slap. And and with that comes, you know, just, you know, keep it in the back of your... We could uh, use the backhand for human stupidity because it does feel like a big factor. Uh-huh. Yeah, I could, I could see that. Okay. I think I'm, I'm going to call it because at the end of the day, Port Authority, it is their job to make sure uh, that the harbor is a safe place. So many innocent people died. That is just not okay. And, and just so we're all clear, Port Authority includes Commander Wyatt and the commanding officer. Correct. All okay. right. I'm calling it. Captain Fromm, you're getting the big slap. Human stupidity. Watch out for the backhand. Port Authority, you're going to the alarmist jail. And I should specify that that's Halifax Harbor Port Authority. Because there are some other Port Authorities that I've got my eye on. And now everyone knows it. (laughs) Um, Okay, well, that was a... a, I'm so glad we talked to Ken. He was awesome. Um, Okay, well, thank you so much for tuning in today. We will be back next week covering the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Erios. Powered by ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.